This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. I help business owners not to be lonely at the top. In this week's episode, we speak to Adam Smith, CEO of Surplus to Purpose. Hear how an almost successful suicide attempt took Adam to Australia and opened his eyes to the global food waste problem. How he went about solving it, first with the worldwide Real Junk Food Project and now Surplus to Purpose, a pro-planet social enterprise. You'll also hear about the toxicity of the hospitality industry, why waste food is an environmental issue, not a poverty issue, and how you can support it. And a key lesson on delegation. He's known as Mr. Junk Food Chef, and his story is utterly inspiring. Today's guest on the Leeds Business Podcast is Adam Smith, co-founder and CEO of Surplus to Purpose. Hi, Adam. Morning, Phil. Before we start, do you want to just give us a brief overview of what Surplus to Purpose is, and then we'll talk about your business journey and how we got to where we got to. So, yeah, Surplus to Purpose is a, I think it's recently been coined as a pro-planet social enterprise. Um, Basically, we intercept surplus products and then we redistribute them all over the world in lots of fun ways. Fantastic, fantastic. Right, we'll get onto all that later, but let's go back to the start. Um, you start. Am I right? You started as a chef, is that right? Accidentally, yeah. I mean, I uh, I, uh, I lost a job. I was working in call centres, and I lost a job, and uh, I just said to my friend, look, have you got any work? And, you know, he asked me to come and wash pots for him in a restaurant. Um, and then next minute, I'm a head chef in Australia. So yeah, uh, I accidentally fell into it. It wasn't a career path, but um, yeah, I think it suited my kind of neuro, neurodivergent traits at the time, um, and my very kind of chaotic and self-destructive path that I used to be on as a as a as a young adult. So yeah, I got into it by accident. It's do you know it's amazing how many people I speak to on this podcast who who got into something totally accidentally, and then that became what they were doing so so have you been are you a trained chef yeah i mean i i couldn't even slice an onion when i was 20 you know i'd, I'd had no relationship with food other than i ate a lot of it and um my mum was a baker uh, before she left me as a kid i remember she used to bake for all our uh, birthday parties so that was the only relationship i'd ever had with food and uh yeah i became a chef um i worked in a hotel and kind of worked my way up in the hierarchy just through natural progression uh did my mvqs went to college um probably left the industry or at least the the uh, the the establishment i was working with probably too quick um but it was a very toxic environment Uh, you may or may not know that hospitality um does have a dark side and i was heavily involved in that and um, yeah, I just went off and decided that I was going to make my own mistakes and learn for myself. So that's when I started traveling the country and uh, learning in different environments and and uh, learning different skills. So I was I was a chef down in uh, Hertfordshire, in just round the back of David Beckham's house in Sawbridgeworth, um, in a in a big country house hotel where I lived in. Um, I catered for Jade Goddy's wedding. You know, I, I got involved in some quite high profile events, and that was kind of the first opportunity I'd ever had in kind of mainstream fine dining catering. Uh, and that's what I kind of wanted to get involved in really. And that's where the rest of my career went. Right. Okay. Okay. So you got involved in five dining, fine dining. How do you end up in Australia? <laughs> I hope you're prepared for this. 
I, I made a very serious attempt to take my own life and I succeeded to the point where I was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, a helicopter had to find me uh, in a car. I'd been sucking on exhaust fumes for over 16 hours and I was pronounced dead at the scene. Um, I had class A drugs in my body, which just about kept my heart beating, but they'd missed my heartbeat as they found me. And yeah, woke up, obviously, and decided I was going to do what I only knew best, uh, which was to continue running away from my problems and I couldn't get any further away from Leeds than Australia. So yeah, I had whatever money I had, I just disappeared and uh, went to Australia and vowed never to be a chef ever again. Right. Okay. I wasn't aware of that aspect of the story. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to go somewhere you don't want to go. But sort of, what took you to that? No, I don't mind. Oh, it's it's a more open book, Phil. What What took you to the point of of trying to kill yourself? Uh, dysfunctional childhood. Uh, I was sectioned as a child. Uh, Self harm, substance abuse, homelessness, prison at twenty one, and. Um, yeah, just a very self-destructive and toxic childhood, abused, um, and yeah, there's only so much I guess a person can take until it gets to the point where you know they can't take anymore, and that's that's the point I got to. Um, the the lead up to it, the trauma, the abuse, the neglect, everything, wasn't the actual reason why I tried to set my own life. It was a breakdown in a relationship, which was completely my fault, and and I just couldn't handle it anymore, and yeah, decided that I was probably no longer fit to be here and and yeah made a very very serious attempt an attempt that there's very few people on the planet come back from it, it, it was it was very bad and very serious um and yeah fortunately i'm i'm still here but it wasn't an epiphany moment it wasn't anything like that it was just you know i, I just uh decided that maybe if i put my energy into something more positive rather than self-destructive then it was worth a shot because that's all I knew all my life, uh, and therefore that's what I did. I just started doing that. That was that was that was as simple as it was, and obviously that's what's led me to where I am today. So Australia, as you say, was physically running away as far as you could get. Yeah, yeah. It, it that was it. It was that was the only reason. Vowed not to get into catering again. It was a very toxic environment. Something that wasn't suited. To someone like me of my disposition, um, especially somebody that was addicted to substances and, and, and alcohol and, and uh, had a very, very self-destructive nature. Um, but I got down there and they offered me more money than I could, I could ever dream of. Uh, one of my jobs, I was on $125,000 a year. Um, you know, it was, it was just insane what they offered because I was quite good at what I did and, and yeah, fell back into it, unfortunately, again. But that was where I then um, kind of founded the real job for project and and that's what that was my path down the kind of environmental route then right right just just going back i mean obviously you know, probably everybody's listening eating in hotels and restaurants and all that sort of thing and you mentioned hospitality is very toxic you know what what do you mean by that ah, wow um so it, it's probably improved a lot now than it was but the, the the default of hospitality is unsociable hours, uh, fast-paced environments, high-pressurized environments. Um, but it did have a really bad reputation when I was starting of uh, male toxic environments. Probably still does. 
Um, you've got a lot of young people that enter hospitality, so students, um, tourism as well, obviously, is, is associated with hospitality. So you've got people that are coming and going all the time. Um, very, very high turnover. You know, everybody then finishes work at one o'clock in the morning and drinks or does drugs, and that causes, you know, problems, which I'm sure everybody can imagine. Um, you know, you throw in uh, chefs, um, young females. Um, it's fair to say, you know, especially front of house staff. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just chaotic and and um, a very very dark place at times. Um, there was fun parts of it, which was where everybody was young. But then when I went into kind of brigades and hierarchies, where you had like senior head chefs, and majority of them were male. Um, a lot of them had had relationships that had broken down. I don't know any head chef that's not been through a divorce. Um, very unsociable hours, uh, long working hours, tiredness, lack of days off. Um, you know, it gets to people, and I watched that happening. And you know, one of my chefs—I uh, won't name names—but you know, he was a he was a white supremacist. He 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 listened to white supremacist music, and he and he abused his staff. You know, he he put he'd stab knives in the back of your arm. He'd burn the back of your arm. He would. He would, he would, um, he would do all sorts to try to kind of make you stronger and you know make you learn better and all that really, really kind of toxic environment. And yeah, I, I witnessed it all basically. And it's dark um, for somebody like me. I kind of thrived off the back of it because I didn't have that kind of structure as a child. I didn't have that kind of natural progression of people putting their arm around me. But when it went wrong, you know, I, I've seen people get abused and hurt. I've witnessed. I know about uh, young people committing suicide and, and um, because of this high-pressured and very, very stressful uh, environments. And what you see as a customer, you know, you, like you said, you know, people have dined in restaurants and hotels and what you see uh, isn't anything like what is really going on behind the scenes. And, um, you know, a lot of the front of house staff are involved in that as well because they have to then enter the kitchen and being part of that environment and uh, they're, they're at the brunt of that, you know, kind of uh, very toxic um communication and, and environment um and, and and yeah i just i just uh would never advise anybody to go into it that's what that's that's the, that's the that's the outcome of that really is, is that um i would definitely definitely uh, uh encourage everybody to learn how to cook and 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 be involved in food and learn how to grow food and 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 cook at home for yourself and make mistakes and experiment and all those things but don't get into hospitality uh, definitely not as a chef. Uh, I would definitely advise people against it, uh, not unless you've got uh, a very, very, very strong stomach, um, a very, very strong mind, and a really good support network around you, which a lot of us didn't, and a lot of us still don't. Um, and so it just didn't work for people like me, unfortunately, in that sense. Okay, okay. So you got to Australia, and tell us how the real junk food project started did you have was there a sudden epiphany how, how did that come about so i was working on a farm three hours north of melbourne uh, i was harvesting almonds uh, which basically meant you stood next to a tree and watched the sun dry these nuts in a tree and just stood there waiting for months literally like it was the most boring thing ever and uh, me uh, and three of us you had to put a net underneath him and you had a big stick and you just bash the tree with a stick um, for months. And so it's com compl complicated work. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, very complicated. And um, 
you know, uh, my soul left my body many, many times in that situation. But you're in a beautiful environment. You know, it's sunny. Uh, you know, you can't complain. But on the same farm that I was working on, there were pigs, and the pigs were kept by the farmer. And the farmer used to have the most incredible produce being fed to these pigs. It used to get delivered every day in these big one-ton vats. And it'd be like, um, there was like vanilla. I don't know if anyone, if you've ever seen vanilla in its truest form, but it's a massive green plant. Um, it's not this little black thing that we see all shriveled up. And, you know, we had apricots and beautiful squashes and being delivered to this farm. And these pigs were getting fed it. And I was eating the same food as the pigs. You know, we were going over every day and picking <laughs> stuff out of it and then cooking with it and going, this is brilliant stuff. Um, I questioned the farmer. I said, you know, I can't get this stuff in the supermarkets. How are you able to get it? And he basically, just in a nutshell, described the whole kind of food supply chain across the world. And, you know, he said, we harvest uh, food, supermarkets cancel the contracts. They can literally cancel the contract the day before, even when all the food's ready to go. Uh, that's a year's worth of growing and, and, and harvesting and, and preparation. Um, and so they share it out between each other, uh, neighboring uh, livestock to just support one another. So he did the same to other neighbours and neighbours brought food to him and that's what they do. They drive down this big long road and every farm they just drop off a, a, another vat of food and um, he only kept the livestock to eat this food. He didn't, it wasn't the other way around. Um, and I just thought that was crazy. And I fell into the trap of saying, well, why don't you feed homeless people with it? Why don't you feed poor people with it? And he just simply said, I'm not a charity. You know, I'm a business. I can't afford to just keep giving stuff away or keep doing, you know, sending it for miles and miles and feeding poor people. And it, it really opened my eyes in terms of how food waste is an environmental issue and uh, poverty is a social issue. Uh, just within that one sentence, he made me realize that there are two very, very separate things. And we've kind of convoluted the two together, especially in Western culture, especially with uh, um uh, you know, the, the poverty that we have in this country, the rise of food banks and um, the cost of living crisis, everything else that, that's come with that. Um, we use surplus food to do that. And it was 22nd of February, 2013, stood on a farm, bashing this tree with a stick. And I said, I'm going to create the Real Junk Food Project. I'm going to feed the world with this food. Literally just said it to these three other people I was with. Two of them were a, a Chinese couple that had come across that couldn't speak English. And I said it to them. And I was showing them I'm going to get this food and I'm going to I'm going to show people how to use this food that others deem surplus or, or waste and, and cook with it and feed people with it. But not in the sense of me stood there with a big giant pot and a queue of 5,000 people or, you know, with a little kind of bowl and, and cutlery. I was talking about, like, how do I educate people about this problem? How do I empower people into positions that are not uh, within poverty? So alleviate them out of those positions so that they can provide for themselves and provide for their families and not have to worry about the cost of, of, of food uh, and use this surplus that's been generated across the world as a, as a way of being able to provide themselves. And then I just went away and just kind of researching it. I spent about three months working on a farm, cooking for some plumbers, uh, some government plumbers. Got this, I got this contract where it was a fly-in, fly-out contract, and I basically just flew in and never flew out and just stayed there. And just cooked every day, lunch, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for these for these group of plumbers. And I, I was bored, so I just basically um, researched researched everything that was going on around the world, what people were doing. And there was very few things going on, especially in the UK at the time when I started it in 2012, uh, 20, 2013, 2012. Of anyone using surplus food in a commercial sense, there were lots of people doing things around handouts to homeless and that kind of stuff, which was fine. But I was talking like on a massive scale. Um, so yeah, I just brought it back to the UK. 
I think I arrived in October 2013. And by December the 16th, 2013, um, I'd opened up one of the world's first Pageview cafes, which people could come and have a meal made out of surplus food and pay whatever they wanted. And I'd effectively dived into circle economy before circle economy was even a buzzword. Um, and basically just said that this food is fit for everybody. It's a human right to have access to food. Look at what's been wasted and just educating people and exposing the problem. And that's effectively what the Real Jumper project was. Okay, so, I mean, that's all absolutely amazing. And, <laughs> Thank you. But, but from a, you know, from stood, you know, under an almond tree in Melbourne <laughs> to, to actually putting it into practice, how did, you know, I mean, this is one of those sort of like macro problems. How do you, you know, how do you attack it as, how do you start as an individual? I mean, you can read every book on the planet. You can speak to every mentor on the planet. You can go get work experience at every business on the planet. But it effectively comes down to just doing it. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely no idea. I knew that I could cook food. I knew I could get access to food. And I emailed about 5,000 people when I was in Australia saying, I'm coming back to the UK. I want to set this project up. Anybody want to help me out do this? I think I had two replies. One of them was the organizers of the cafe uh, this community cafe that we're not doing very much and they said we've got this kitchen you can use it in armley in leeds and uh, the other one was uh, a, a lawyer called duncan milwayne who eventually became my chair of trustees uh, i'm still friends with him to this day and he he set up a cafe himself in salte called salte canteen and he had a page field cafe as well um for many years um yeah I, I and then after these emails i just went and visited this this kitchen and said right i'll just come down and cook here i didn't have a job so i was there a couple of days a week um and yeah to be honest i don't even remember how i managed to survive because a month later my son was born so i had this child um and it wasn't until march 20 um march what did i come back in december 2013 so it was march 2014 um the guardian came they'd heard about what i was doing and uh, all the kind of uh, uh, papers had got these headlines of like chefs feeding homeless people from bins, you know, that kind of stuff, because I was using surplus food. And sometimes I'd been through bins in supermarkets and got stuff and gone, this is absolutely fine. I can definitely use this, especially fruit and vegetables. And uh, there was all the headlines. So the Guardian got hold of it and the Guardian came and they did a video on it. And I think it had something like 200,000 people had viewed it in like 48 hours when it went out. And that was it. My life just completely changed. I had people from all over the world contacting me, asking me to feed their families. I had people wanting to set up cafes, suppliers of food, environmental health, obviously, you know, and, and all the kind of uh, regulatory bodies uh, heard about what I was doing. And I just kind of went with it. You know, I I, 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 I I did loads of things wrong, Phil. I could write a book on a million ways of how not to run an enterprise. I don't think I could tell you how to run one. <laughs> I really couldn't because we firefight a lot. Um, you know, you're aware of some of the businesses that uh, that we work with, you know, like the Bisque Realiser and, uh, and Saskia down there, you know, incredible human beings who are, um, it's, it's in their heart, you know, it's in my heart. I'm really passionate about this. I can go on stage and, you know, I did a TED Talk in front of thousands of people. I can go, I went to Geneva and spoke to thousands of people. I've been to Barcelona and spoke to thousands of people. Just literally got on stage, no preparation whatsoever, no speech or anything, and just got on stage and spoke for an hour incredibly passionately about the environmental impacts of surplus food, about what we're doing with it, about why it's different what we're doing with it because we focus on the environment rather than focusing on the social issues i'm not here to feed people i'm here to stop waste it's as simple as that um i want systematic changes i don't want to keep opening more and more food banks i don't want to keep um uh, having queues of people queuing up or children going to school hungry 
I don't want to keep doing that just to kind of sustain funding or sustain work. I, I want to actually, you know, try and create change. And so that was my kind of ultimate goal. How do I get there? Um, I made many, many mistakes getting there, but that was that because that was that thing that I always kind of fixated with is that was where I wanted to get to, which is where I still do want to get to. Um, I don't know what's happening day to day. Sometimes, you know, a lorry could turn up, uh, uh, um, you know, something might happen. Uh, we get a lot of frozen food. I've got to deal with it. We've got loads of ribs in at the moment. I'm trying to get rid of it today. And I've got loads of customers coming. We don't normally open today. So I'm trying to manage all that. But day by day, you know, I literally didn't know what I was doing. Obviously, since then, 10 years down the line, it'll be 10 years in December. You know, we have infrastructure, we have policies, we have procedures, we have personnel, we have finance departments, HR, and that kind of stuff. That's, you know, that's, but I didn't have that when I started. I didn't know what HR was. I didn't know what, uh, um, uh, you know, what VAT was. I, I had no idea that I had to register at 80,000 or 80, whatever it is now. Um, I didn't know any of this stuff. And I thought if someone gave me the money, I could just go spend it on something. And that was it. And I knew how much I had at the time in my bank or in a safe. And I was like, well, we're fine. But, you know, I didn't know anything about how to run a business. I was put into a position of leadership and a CEO literally from the first day. Uh, the whole world wanted my attention. I was I was pulled all over the world. The media loved what I was doing because I've got autism. So I was very honest and very brutal about everything. I said stuff on camera that I probably shouldn't have said looking back. Um, and But I, I had no idea what I was doing. And also, Phil, going back to what I said earlier about the kind of um, the um, the abuse and the trauma as a child as well, I still hadn't dealt with that properly. So, you know, even around 2018 time after five years of doing the project, I had to go into therapy. I had to step back. I had to do a lot of things to um, to go work on myself because I've been pushed into this position, which. I got carried away with it. My ego got carried away with it. You know, you do. You know, every paper, every TV company in the world wanted me. I was filming with Jamie Oliver. I was I was filming with you, filming with Install. You know, my inbox was just battered with people requesting my time. And, you know, I loved it. I did. I, I loved it. But my ego got carried away. It brought down a lot of relationships. Um, I probably didn't spend as much time with my son as I should have done, which I do regret. Um, but nobody prepares you for that. There's no, like I said, there's no book. There's no mentor in the world that can prepare you for that. And it's also a choice, Phil. You choose to take up those opportunities or you choose not to. And you carry on, you know, laying the ground and the foundations for your business and, and you know, learning about how to run a business. I didn't do that part. I just ran off with it. So there was times where the infrastructure of the organization could have toppled over at any point because I had no foundations in place. And it was only when it got to the point where it nearly did that I understood the value of structure and foundations and policies and procedures and liability and insurance and all those kind of things that we have in place now. It's simply through mistake. And I do consult with people and say, I'm happy doing all that nonsense behind the scenes to get you the foundations that you need. And you just run off and do it because I ain't going to tell you to do it because I know you're not going to do it. I'm also not going to hold you back. And I'm also not going to tell you what to do because I was that person. But there's things that you need to have in place. And that's what I do. I go to a place and go, right, I'm going to do all the rubbish that you don't want to do, that you don't care about. But I promise you, it's really, really important that you have this stuff in place. So um, even now, I still don't tell people the stuff that happened to me um, because it's pointless when you've got headstrong um mavericks and, and and leaders and uh you know influences you know that I, did, I didn't have when i was younger but on social media especially uh, they're gonna listen to me they're not gonna listen to you they're not gonna listen to people that have been there and done it um it, it's just that, that was me you know i just told you i, I knew better than you uh simple as that so yeah that 
there is no kind of I wish I could you know give you a bullet point uh, detailed instructions of how to get from an idea and under a tree to an organization that's fed over 20 million people across the world and 126 projects in seven countries but I really don't know how it happened, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so all this happened and you don't know what happened. So if I could, un if I could unpick something, there was tons of brilliant stuff in there, Adam. And, and yeah, I have to say people will listen to you and people do listen to you. So don't, don't put yourself down on that. Um, Thank you. So just, just explain how the Real Junk Food Project expanded. How did, did people just go, right, we're going to do it? Or did you manage yeah. it? Or did you coordinate? Was it, it sort of like pseudo franchise i mean how how did that work from yeah. a business point of view so again i didn't know what a social franchise was. i didn't know why a franchise was but a social franchise was even still it's still new now there's not many successful or large social uh, kind of franchises that are happening on the scale that we would try to do it especially in a very autonomous way as well uh, there was no kind of central governance there was no um uh, everything was coming through me so somebody emailed me um you know, Wigan, Sheffield were the first groups that started contacting me. A group of individuals, seen you on TV, saw you on The Guardian, watched your video, seen your TED Talk, love what you're doing, we want to start a cafe, how do you do it? And I was like, well, if you want to call yourself the Real Jump Project, you can do and just call it Real Jump Project Sheffield or Brighton or Glasgow or Edinburgh, which is what was happening. Berlin, Israel, South Korea, Japan. Um, and I was just telling people, yep, go ahead, go do it. Um, all you got to do is feedback your data. I want your data. I want to know how much food you're intercepting. I want to know how many people you fed and I'll feed that back to like, local authorities, uh, central government, et cetera, and we'll create this kind of like uh, uh, very autonomous social franchise network um, of people doing this thing that will eventually affect change and behavior. You know, it, it will it will eventually have an impact. Um, and that's all I started doing. And I, I, you know, like I said, I got autism. I was logging this stuff. I've got, you know, I'm really detailed with uh, kind of information and data. I love doing it. Um, don't know anything about it, but I, I log everything just by default. And there's there's data analysts that have come to me and going, this is, you know, brilliant that you've managed to capture all of this. But I just did it by default anyway. I wasn't, you know, doing it intentionally because I knew what I was doing. Um, and, you know, I, I met the projects. I visited the projects. You know, I was kind of going and doing speeches for opening the projects. Um, all very autonomous, but then everybody started to come to me. And when things went wrong, or like a freezer broke down in South Africa and they were ringing me at two, three o'clock in the morning asking me to fix the freezer, I was like, I don't fix freezers. Uh, it's also three o'clock in the morning, I'm in bed. <laughs> That's when you start to realize that it wasn't successful in the sense that it wasn't sustainable because everything was coming through me and it needed me. And if I wasn't part of that dialogue or that process or that communication then it, there was nothing um but nothing was supporting me so even though i had uh, a charitable foundation which was kind of centralizing as much as I can because this kind of maverick nature i was running off and doing things and we just didn't even have the basic stuff in place you know we didn't even register for gift aid for about seven years um we'd open up a bank account and get insurance but that was like the basics of what it was we had board meetings and we just couldn't get uh tied down what it was that everybody was needing until it got to the point where everybody grew too big you know and uh, and then that autonomy became wider and wider to the point where they felt they could go off and do their own thing they didn't want to be part of it anymore and all this kind of stuff it's like breaking down obviously when things started going wrong it was too big and too silly to manage i mean it was 126 projects in seven countries at any one time through one person is just insane um 
and I would never ever encourage anybody to get to that. But like I said, I got caught up with it, and I was going out and going on Hufflepuff and installs, saying that oh, we've got projects in Israel and South Korea. We still got one in Berlin. Tobias and his partner there are running that, and then you know uh, um, there's nowhere in, the, in his team in Israel, and you know I knew everybody. I got autism. I can remember literally everybody's name that I've ever spoke to. Um, and I was reading off all this data and all these figures and all this information to the media, and they were absolutely loving it, and they were soaking it all up. But the reality of it was is that we didn't. The projects were amazing. Don't get me wrong. Amazing people doing amazing things, stopping food, page fields, circular economy, doing loads and loads and loads of great things. But there was nothing central. There was nothing supporting them. They, they didn't get what they needed. Everybody had a kind of little kind of interpretation of the model, um, an interpretation of doing it there, you know, it was localized. So this is what people here want. This is what we're going to do kind of thing. Until it got to a point where it was just, you know, it got too much. Um, it imploded. Um and yeah, I mean that was that was at the point of it was about two thousand and, and eighteen where, you know, I'd lost a lot of good people within the organisation, and um, I started to question myself and started to question, is this me? And um, you know, am I not necessarily in the wrong, but is it something that I'm doing or saying that's causing these people to leave and uh, feel the way they do about me? It was a serious breakdown in a relationship that I'd had for over twenty years um, with a friend. And I've not spoken to him since, and that—that's what led me to, you know, to think, hang on a minute, this is—I can't keep using an excuse anymore that I was abused as a kid or that I was, you know, I'm traumatized. I have to do something about it, especially as a father, especially as a position of leadership, a figurehead within a community, within the public. Um, you know, I had to work on that. So, yeah, the real job project was an incredible, incredible thing to be a part of. You know, it was such a positive momentous thing that was happening and we had all you know the 2017 uh general election going on with jeremy corbyn and all them young people coming together and all that kind of like socialist values which was kind of fitting into the kind of the rhetoric around the social circle economy and food waste which you know regardless of what your political views are um it was all this kind of momentum i mean obviously he, he had a, a subgroup called momentum which were uh, was working with him at the time but you know, the Green Party was, you know, establishing, uh, there was lots of the food waste bill was being mentioned in Parliament, and there was all this, you know, amazing attention. And obviously, if you feel when it started the war on waste with all the coffee cups and the big pile of carrots in the field, and Jamie Oliver had it, you know, on his show, loads and loads to talk about. It was such a buzz, and we were kind of like the, the founding people of doing that. Um, and I was the founder of the founding people, and I was the one that was in the middle of it all, and it was beautiful. It was really, really beautiful, but there were so many things we just didn't do right. Um, but then there were so many things that we got right at, at the same time. You know, nobody else got the media attention that we got anywhere in the world. No one had anything like what I got. Um, so despite all the things that we probably didn't have in place that we should have had, um, no money in the world could have paid for the amount of attention and, and exposure that we had as a project and potentially the impacts that we had on um, systematic change and also people's behavior towards food. So this whole this whole thing basically just got too big because it because it didn't have I suppose you call it proper business structures within it and then it sort of imploded imploded on itself almost. Yeah, but in like a way that was organic. So it wasn't like uh it imploded because of an incident and therefore it all just fell apart and everything stopped. The projects are still carrying on, you know, they're still doing their own thing, they just called themselves something different, but the real junk food project as a trademarked entity um, couldn't survive doing what it was doing without financial backing, um, 
impartial governance, which I didn't really understand until obviously later in the day. Um, I had a lot of people around me that were just yes people. You know, Adam, keep doing this, keep doing this. Yeah, that's great, keep doing this. But I needed people to actually tell me uh, uh, what I should or shouldn't be doing and maybe the consequences of the impacts of those actions may be a little bit more tougher. Uh, not taking anything away from them because even though there was yes people, they were inf- incredible for me to have around, but it needed something different. Um, and because of the lacking of all of that, uh, it just, you know, and also I was toxic and I had trauma and I'd, I'd, I'd not worked on myself at all. I'd just gone head straight into coming out of a very, very toxic environment from catering into kind of transitioning into leadership and, and media, which was also similarly toxic, but it was me. It was, I was the one that was kind of, you know, uh, carrying, carrying that on. Um, so there was a lot of things that were not going right, but then you could say, well, it all went wrong, but it didn't go wrong because there's projects that are still, you know, surviving now. I could name quite a few around the country. There are people all across the world that have been fed through surplus food from millions of projects, not just real junk food projects, but millions of projects because we went and did this. Um, there are supermarkets now reducing the amount of food that they waste at supermarket level, maybe not because of the projects, mainly because of the cost of living crisis and what's going on across the world, but they're still reducing it. Um, and there's more and more access to food anywhere in the world now um, because of what we did, because there was all this attention around what we were trying to do. So it didn't fail, but we got a lot of things wrong, I think it's fair to say. Right. But there's, you know, don't beat yourself up on it. You got a huge amount of things right. <laughs> a huge amount of things right. And yeah. And that's not, and that's not the end of the story because the next stage is surplus to purpose. But before we get onto that, I want to talk to our listeners about the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. My half of the agreement every week, I bring you inspiring Leeds business people for free, inspiring like Adam. Your half of the deal, listener, is has two simple steps. Number one, share this podcast with just one person you think will get value from it. Step number two, if you're listening post a review on the Apple Podcast app at podchaser.com or give us five stars on Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, just give this episode a thumbs up. That's it. Fair deal? I think that's a fair deal, Adam? Oh, it sounds fair to me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So we'll carry on with the story. So uh, Real Junk Food Project, sort of in, we'll use the word implodes, but but not in the yeah, negative it's sense. Yeah, You've obviously taken yourself away and worked on yourself, which I think for all business owners is, is important. Whether they get that just through uh, mentoring or professional help is really, really tough at the top, and everybody needs that. But then the next stage is surplus to purpose. So do you want to talk us through how that came about? Yeah, so surplus to purpose was created at the time where the Real Job Project was still in existence, and it was receiving food especially during covid covid had a massive impact on surplus food across the uk um the way that i tried to uh, get people to understand it was the food supply chain is a constant conveyor belt they never stop making food they never stop supplying food they never stop stocking food up they never stop wasting food it's just constant when covid happened this conveyor belt stopped and all this food just flew off and no one knew what to do with it or where it was going to go the whole country shut down and we intercepted stupid amounts. I mean, uh, nearly a million meals within four weeks we were doing at the time, uh, whereas we do that in a year now. Um, it was insane. We had no infrastructure, nothing. And the types of food that we were getting were more kind of destined for hospitality, so catering-style food, um, 
food that was of a certain size, so roughly anything around three to five kilos and above is what we deem suitable for catering or production or manufacturing, um, not really suitable for retail. And uh, um, Thomas Franks, a, 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 a very well-known, well, well-established catering company, uh, their CEO, Tom, uh, Frank Bothwell, uh, came to meet me at the Real Jumper Project and said, let's do stuff with this food. Um, they wanted to cook with some of this food, make it into meals and then deliver it to people using surplus and then we just you know frank created the surplus to purpose name and we created a cic together and said let's potentially even have real job project supply surplus to purpose with food and the surplus purpose could use it and then cook with it etc etc so um it was basically utilizing the food that real job project couldn't couldn't do anything with um you know we had cafes we had a little bit of outside catering events and we had provisions into schools but it was all kind of raw ingredients small retail raw ingredients um and he came to my warehouse. I think I had like 250 pallet shelving uh, kind of spaces in my warehouse. It was huge. And there was just pallets like free high of food. And he was like, this is just insane. It's all this food just sat here. We could be cooking with it. It's, it's you know, we could be doing much better things with it. Um, but then unfortunately, COVID caught up with the Real Jumpy Project and it, it liquidated in uh, November 21. And Surplus Purpose just effectively took over. So Frank asked some of his senior members of his team to join me on the board. Um, so his wife, his finance director, his head of charities, his, um, his, uh, uh, um, uh, some of his chefs to join me. So we now sit together as a board of about seven of us. And the idea was is that we'd pick up where Real Job Project left off, but we'd also have a focus around catering uh, and providing food uh, into schools and potentially also into prisons, which is uh, the next route we're going into. Um, so initially, when we kind of took over, we didn't really know what we were going to do because we didn't know if we were going to get past this kind of uh, previous company liquidating and whether it had legs. Uh, and like I said, that was November 21. We moved into this warehouse space in Leeds and moved from the previous tenancy that the Real Jump Project had. Uh, we've been here ever since. And, you know, we're growing and growing. Um, we had a loss in year one, but I think we broke even in year two, but we kind of nearly quadrupled turnover. Um, and year three now, I think we've got a really established base of... Uh, understanding where we want to go and what we want to do with this food and, and what we specialize in and um, and that's that's the aim you know our year end is just finished in September so from this month onwards as you can see behind me that's my events board is that we're you know a huge focus on utilizing this food and getting it out through catering and events educating people and exposing the problem and empowering them to potentially uh, be part of the change um, and that's that's the that's the focus at the moment but yeah surplus to purpose is effectively um it it started intercepting surplus food but you may have seen you know i know you've you've been to visit us uh phil that the we also deal with recyclable materials so we deal with plastics we deal with wood we deal with um metals we separate all the plastics out we recycle them we share them we pass them on we get rebates for things so the end goal isn't to deal with just the food the end goal is to deal with environmental issues of all the materials that come that would have gone to waste and so we've effectively diversified into other things that obviously generate income for us, um, but highlight some of the issues of things that are created unnecessarily, uh, things that we have lots of surplus of. Um, the primary objective, obviously, is food, but just part and parcel of dealing with food, you end up coming across some really weird and wonderful things, including 8.5 million magazines, which landed on our doorstep uh, quite a few months ago, which was fun, still dealing with that. Um, and then we've just built relationships and stakeholders within the kind of waste environment and and some of the sectors that we're involved in uh, environment waste uh, waste management um hospitality production manufacturing 
Uh, and now we say, like, you know, we recently got a contract with a company over in Moulton, and instead of just sending us food, they also send us all their cardboard and all their plastics, um, which is great for them, gives them a bit green tick against their ESG reports. And, um, you know, and we get things that we can generate money out of us, we can swap with others, we can pass on, we can support others with, and, and effectively food that we can use then for, for our events and our catering, and also to supply into schools as well. So, yeah, it's kind of diversified a little bit and evolved, but, you know, still that kind of main focus is look at how much food is being wasted or look how much food is being created that we're never going to consume, I think is the right way of saying it. Um, that's the surplus element of it. We we, we grow 6,000 calories per person per day on this planet. Um, so we have far too much food that's being made. A lot of that food goes to livestock and biofuels, but a big percentage of it comes to human beings. Um, and that's just what we're tackling. We're just trying to look at and focus on the issues that come with creating that much food that we just physically can't consume. So just just going backwards, just to clarify for our for our listeners, where where does the surplus food come from? And then are you are you in effect a, a catering company for events? Is that is that the, the basic structure? Yeah, I mean surplus food comes from everywhere and everywhere. You know, we we specialise and deal with um, the entire sector, the entire food supply chain. So from production, farms, manufacturing, um, all the way through to third sector, you know, we get food from other third sector uh, organizations and food banks that have some food donated to them that they don't need or can't use, or they have surplus and we, 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 we deal with that as well. So we do the entire supply chain. Um, I've built up relationships now over 10 years. Some I have personal relationships, some I have to go through third parties, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful connotations and uh, relationships that we have in order to get access to that food. Sometimes it just arrives. Sometimes we collect it on a regular basis. We go to the back of store of supermarkets. Sometimes I might go to a, a redistribution centre. Um, I'll just get an email randomly saying, we've got this food, can you help us out with it? So we constantly firefight, but we also have a little bit of structure in place in terms of food that we get on a regular basis. That food comes in, we weigh it all, so I know to the gram how much food we've intercepted from anywhere across the world, where it's come from, what temperature it came in, the weight of it, the condition of it, everything gets recorded. And then we quality control that food. We've got well-trained volunteers. Some of them have been with me for like seven, eight years now. And they quality control that food, so the control of the day, it's the packaging, um, the 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 the, the um, state of the food, so whether it's got mould or, you know, if it's been, I don't know, chewed through by rats in a, in a, in a warehouse somewhere. All that quality control process is really, really robust and really tight. It's at that point then that we do three things. So uh, our main objective is the catering because that allows us to use food that um, would have otherwise gone to waste that can't go into retail. Uh, we have a supermarket which we open three days a week where people can come in and buy a box from us. Uh, but that is effectively all the food that we can't shift goes into this space and people come in and they can just buy a box of food from us. Um, uh, as many boxes as they like and then we redistribute food as well so we redistribute food to other charities projects um we send stuff to the front line in ukraine over to poland refugee camps in calais um many organizations across leeds there's a lot of homeless groups that come and get drinks from us that we supply for free uh, and we also have a community fridge that people come down and just grab a uh, grab some food out of and that's completely free at the point of access for anybody that turns up um so yeah but the main focus is the catering and the reason being is because you can't put black bananas into the retail environment because customers just wouldn't accept them. But I can make them into smoothies or I can make them into banana bread. So catering allows us to 
uh, apply people with skills, train people, but it allows us to have a much more bigger impact um, on food that would have otherwise gone to waste if we went down the other activities with it. Um, so yeah, we'd like to consider ourselves hopefully in year three, or at least by the end of year three, as one of the largest environmental caterers in the UK, uh, just for the sheer fact that of the, the volume of food that we intercept, uh, but also the amount of food that we cater and, and who we supply to. Um, for me, we do a lot of weddings. I've done about 25 weddings in the past two to three years um, across the UK. A lot of people will question and say, why are you feeding surplus food to people at weddings? Shouldn't you be feeding it to homeless people or people in need? Well, I could feed all the poor people on the planet, but there'll still be food waste. And it doesn't actually do anything. It just sustains both problems in my eyes. Um, we keep needing people to be poor in order to keep feeding food waste. And I want to kind of separate that rhetoric and um, create a narrative around the fact that we grow too much food and we need to deal with this at an environmental uh, level. And for me, the people that can do that are the demographics that wouldn't necessarily you associate with food banks or being on benefits, those that we kind of use, supply the food to generally through these third sector organisations. I go to weddings and speak to fathers of the brides and they've sat there eating sea bass and ribs and quinoa salads and going, you're telling me all this food would have gone to waste? And then I'm like, yeah, it's like, I didn't realize that this was the type of food that went to waste. You know, I thought it was stale bread or moldy fruit and vegetables. I didn't realize that people were throwing away this type of food. You know, I pay this for this food and, and this is getting thrown away. And they start getting angry about it and you start educating them and you feel like maybe you had a bit more impact than, no disrespect, feeding a queue of people that need the food because they have the capacity to go away and do something about it. Whereas the people that need it really don't because they're really hand to mouth and day by day. You know, I support lots of organisations that do that kind of work and my heart goes out to them all. But I'm here to try and have a systematic change and a much more impactful change. So, yeah, the, the focus is can we tap into demographics of people who would never, ever eat surplus food and try to educate them around the problem, uh, but using surplus food as a tool and a mechanism to be able to do that. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, and anybody who wants you to cater for their event, um, the website will be uh, will be in the show notes at surplustopurpose.com. Um, before we finish, um, and we ask all our guests this, uh, we ask all our guests to give us a how-to, um, and you've taught us so much already today, Adam, absolutely so much. Give us a very quick how-to. What are you going to teach us? It's going to be the one that I've struggled with my whole life, and that's delegate. Uh, I have autism. I was diagnosed about three years ago. Um, went through a lot of trauma therapy and uh, since I said 2018 when I had the kind of issues with the uh, Real Truth Project, uh, worked on myself a lot, allowed myself to be incredibly vulnerable, decided that I was the issue that I needed to work on and during that process it was revealed that I was neurodivergent and uh, I got an apology from CAMS because I was sectioned as a kid and said you know, they didn't realise at the time uh, the issues that they now understand better. Um, and it allowed me to understand myself much, much better as a human being, as a father, as a CEO, as a person in a position of responsibility and work on that. Um, still make mistakes. Um, but prior to 2018, I was the headstrong, I'll do it all. You know, we once had a visitor from Taiwan that came and um, they wanted to speak to the CEO of the Real Jumpery Project. And I was sweeping the floor at the back of the cafe. And I remember Teresa, my cafe manager at the time, said, oh, he's sweeping the floor. And they were like, CEOs don't sweep flaws obviously because they come from a very very hierarchical uh, culture and it was like no adam does you know you, you know he wants to lead by example all this kind of stuff but i wasn't really leading by example i was just doing everything um 
I didn't quite understand how to delegate. I didn't quite understand that people were coming to volunteer with me and went to work alongside me and that delegation was part of that kind of culture and, and that I was trying to create rather than everybody chasing me or stood around waiting to see what Adam was going to do next or so, you know, I was going to ask him. I, I, you, people would just copy me or chase me. Um, so under the under the surplus, the purpose, you know, I've had to really, really step back a lot. And I feel like my position as a CEO is, isn't is about being at the forefront and being in the middle all the time. It's about being alongside my team and supporting them with what they need, potentially even being behind them and putting them at the forefront as well. Um, and I, I really, really do thrive on that now. So delegation for me has been kind of pivotal in part of that transition, that change from this toxic human being that was headstrong and media hungry to this kind of like behind the scenes CEO Um you know, even now there's people messaging me on the on the WhatsApp group that come in as volunteers. I can hear them in the warehouse who need jobs and have come here because they want to give back their time. And I'm having to delegate. And delegate for me was always like, we'll just get on with it. You know it needs doing. Just, just, just do it. Um, whereas now it's it's much more structured. And I, I feel like delegation for me is a measure of success. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that's phrased and it really, really is because... Um, it allows everybody to understand and uh, be part of uh, what it is that you're all trying to achieve rather than it feeling like I'm just fobbing off jobs to somebody because I'm not able to do it and I should be the one that's doing it all. Um, so it's something that I've always really, really struggled with. Um, I now go to places where I see similar people, especially in hospitality, who are like, oh, I've worked 70 hours this week and I did everything, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, and, Everybody else is stood around, you know, time to lean, time to clean and all of that, you know, within, within hospitality, like, but you need to delegate some of these jobs. You can't just keep doing it all yourself. You, you know, it's, it's impossible. You will burn out, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, break down. So, yeah, delegation is um, something that I've completely undervalued. Um, it's something now that I thrive on. Um, I, I love it. I, 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 I have a very structured way of approaching it. Um, I, I communicate in lots of different ways, even though I really struggle with communication. So through different social media channels, through WhatsApp groups, through written boards, you can see behind me. Um, and I'm really good at kind of, through catering, we had this notion called aces in places. So it's a, I think it came from a football term. I'm pretty sure it was Brian Clough that did it. But it was like, you always put your best team out no matter what. Um, you know, you didn't try to put uh, weaker people in positions to try and uh, counteract your appointment. It was like your strongest team no matter what. And if it's your strongest team, you'll always succeed or you'll always win. In hospitality, we used to do that. So um, when I trained in a line kitchen, especially in like American diners, you had your strongest people on the grill and then, you know, you worked your way down and people that were doing salad were probably some of your weaker chefs. Um, and that's basically how it works. In a line kitchen, the strongest chefs are always at the end cooking all the burgers and all the meat and the fish, etc. Um, so that's what I do now, and especially in, in volunteering in third sector, it's really, really difficult. But because I know everybody personally, I know the person who's on the forklift today. I know there's another person here at the moment that's uh, not very confident working on uh, the computers and the software and the data stuff. So the delegation comes part of them personal relationships and knowing people's strengths and knowing people's weaknesses as well, but kind of like empowering them through those weaknesses of going, do you want to try this? Should we do it together? You know, do, do you want me to supervise you, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I didn't realize just how much I would love it, uh, kind of not doing all, <laughs> basically, because I've given up all my jobs. Um, but what it does allow me to do then is it allows me to be the CEO. So if, for example, the hand dryer is broken in the toilet, 
I can sit down and deal with the hand dryer and go away and fix that for them. So now when they go to the toilet, they've got a hand dryer and they've realized that I've gone away and done that for them. Whereas if I was doing everything, I wouldn't have the time to sort the hand dryer out. And I couldn't delegate that job to anybody because they didn't have the capacity to do so. So I now fully understand the value of it. And yeah, for me, delegation is the key to success. I know it sounds like a horrible cliche, but it truly is, Bill. You're absolutely right. And it's, it is, it's one, of the, one of the things I talk to my clients about all the time. And so many CEOs struggle with delegation because like you said, it's almost seen as like a weakness where actually it's actually a strength. And as you say, you're, you're actually enjoying doing it. And, you know, surprise, surprise, more stuff gets done because it's been delegated to the right person. Exactly. It is in places. Okay. One final thing um, from you. We ask all our guests to give uh, another Leeds business a shout out. So who are you going to give a shout out to? Can I be rude and cheeky, Phil, and ask for a couple? Because there are a couple of organisations, one that probably everybody knows at the moment because they're in all the media, which is the Biscary, uh, like I said, Lisa and Saskia. Amazing, beautiful, wonderful human beings who are uh, very inspiring and um, have just got an incredible ethos and have probably had such an impact in this city. Um, beyond businesses that I've seen across the last 10 years of working in, in Leeds, um, you know, I even they came yesterday because... They had some surplus biscuits and they dropped it off for me and and I just love everything about them and what they do. Um, there's a couple of others that I absolutely love and, and don't get as much attention, which is Leeds Dads. Um, Errol and his team there have done some incredible work, especially as a as a as a male, uh, a father figure, and somebody who has had uh, trauma and 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 struggled in those situations. Leeds Dads is an incredible organisation. Um, and they worked out of an organisation called Slung Lowing Leads, who I did a lot of work with during COVID. Uh, Alan and the team there are absolutely fantastic. They did a page of field, amateur dramatics, do amazing, amazing things within Holbeck and the kind of South Leeds community. Um, and they all work together and interconnect, which is, I think is a beautiful thing as well, so that there is a relationship between them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, they all deservedly uh, should get a shout out. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. There will be links to all three of them. Um, in the show notes. Um, anybody who's listened to the show regularly will know the Biscary have been on and they are absolutely fantastic people. Um, a friend of mine actually does work with Leeds Dad, so I know how good they are as well. Um, Adam, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you today. Um, we'll also put the uh, the address of, uh, of sur Surplus to Purpose in the show notes as well. Go down, pick up some food. We've been there. It's absolutely fantastic. Adam, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.